he succeeded in getting into part of the harbour where he managed to see some ships. I could see three or four with Swedish flags and two were flying the Blue Peter. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we have the story of Sergeant Philip Thomas Waring, who was in 616 Squadron, which is a fighter command squadron, and because we're covering the Battle of Britain in this one, which is excellent. I, I don't think we've done previously. We've done Battle of France and Dunkirk and lots of the fighter sweeps since sort of 1941 and Bomber Command and all the others, but I don't think we've done a fighter command Battle of Britain one, and I love this. So he was born in December 1915, so in this case he's 24 years old when he's shot down and this story starts. Okay. He's from Sutton Coalfield, and he lived in Upper Clifton Road in Sutton Coalfield. The house is still there. I looked it up. Fabulous looking building. And his pre-war profession was that he was an accounts clerk. And he was a member of the German Alpine Club. Okay. this has some relevance, particularly early on in his capture. But that was a hiking and mountaineering association which was set out to promote sort of sport, hiking and everything else, and climbing and expeditions. So he'd done a lot of that. So he was fairly active, fairly fit. And he joined the RAF Volunteer Reserve in May of 1939. And he started on his pilot training, and of course he was in that when war was declared. So he was actually called up to full-time service just before the declaration of war. He was called up on the 1st of September 1939. And he finished his flying training, and he joined 616 Squadron, uh, which was up in Yorkshire. It was converted onto the Spitfire as a fighter. And they saw out the early part of the Battle of Britain up in Yorkshire before they were moved to Kenley in South London on the 19th of August 1940. Just three days later, he claimed his first... Messerschmitt kill. So he was on the road through his combat career when this happened. Now, this is a particularly interesting one because he's obviously moved to Kenley on the 19th of August. It's getting really quite hot as far as the Battle of Britain is concerned. He's had a busy 22nd of August because that's when he claimed his first kill. And now we move to the day of when he is lost, and that is Sunday of August the 25th. Now, that's quite a big day, or should we say the night before was quite a big day in the story of the Battle of Britain because the night before was the day that the Germans first bombed London by accident. Pivotal day pivotal day because obviously Goering had said bomb the airfields dare I say it, the Germans are probably doing quite well with that strategy and then bombs fall on London on the night of the 24th so the 25th is actually quite a quiet day initially for both sides it's fairly misty first thing in the morning the weather forecast is it's going to be clear but basically most people are sitting around until the late afternoon now Churchill had got very upset obviously about the bombing of London the night before so he's very much on the phone to bomber command planning a raid on Berlin in for that night the night of the 25th and meanwhile all of the fighter commands are saying well what are we going to expect today do we have to send some cover for this and everything else so there's a lot of planning and strategy going on this day but most of the guys are all sat at the airfields not doing very much and things don't really start to get busy until about five o'clock the Germans send over two massive formation of fighters and bombers. One of them heads down sort of West Country, Exeter area, and a second one starts to head for Dover to attack the ports there. Now, there's a little bit of discrepancy between post-war research and comments that are made later on and his report at the time, but I think we get to where it needs to be quite quickly. So his report says, I took off from Kenley, 
between 5 and 5.30 on the 25th of August on a defensive patrol, and after intercepting some German aircraft over the channel, I was involved in a dogfight over the French coast, during which I was shot down. Now, there are reports to say that he actually went chasing after a Messerschmitt 109 that, that he had intercepted over Canterbury, and obviously it's not that far, Canterbury, particularly when you're in a Spitfire and you're chasing someone, it's only a few miles across the coast. He doesn't really say how he got shot down, there is a report that says that uh, it's most likely he was shot down by ground fire, anti-aircraft fire, because in his own report he says, I bailed out and came down about a mile south of Calais and about a quarter of a mile from a German aerodrome at about 6.30. Now, that's the Calais aerodrome. They just moved a massive amount of German fighters in because the German fighters were struggling with endurance over the UK and therefore they wanted to get as close to the coast as possible. So it's a very high-intensity area of Luftwaffe activity, big high intensity area of ground fire and it was most likely that he probably fell victim to that anti-aircraft fire. It was actually quite a bad day for the RAF all round. That day they lost 20 aircraft through the bombings and everything else. There were also 84 civilians killed and 233 injured whereas the Luftwaffe lost 47 aircraft that day but they had obviously three times as many aircraft so they could sustain that. However he says that the Germans had seen him coming down and surrounded him immediately. A subsequent report said he was actually captured by a guy on a motorcycle and sidecar before being taken to the airfield but because he spoke a smattering of German and because he had been in the Alpine Corps he was actually wined and dined quite a bit and he was treated with gifts of cognac cigarettes and chocolate before he was actually taken away tough so, life tough life however because he, he kind of hints at it here he says I was not interrogated but I had some general conversation with the German pilots so there's probably a little bit of camaraderie there uh, you see a little bit of that sort of thing in the Battle of Britain film but quite how long that was going to last for who's to know but he goes on to say the next day he was taken by car to Brussels to a prison where he was there for two nights alone in a cell again he was not interrogated in a prison and saw no one but the guard so that then takes us on to the 28th of August when it says he was flown to Germany, probably to Hanover. He arrived in the evening and after about half an hour was sent over to Dulagluft. And we've come across Dulagluft. Many times. Many times. We well know Dulagluft. After being left for about four hours in a bedroom cell, I was visited by a man in army uniform who produced... A Red Cross form. Who could have seen that coming? Who could have seen that? That famous Red Cross form that we've done. He said he must have my squadron and group. I said at first I could not give that information, and he showed me a long list of officers who appeared to have given their squadron and group numbers. I then gave him the information. So is this a rare example of the Red Cross form ruse actually working to get information? It certainly looks like it, doesn't ah. it? I mean, we've come across that ploy before. Mm -hmm. oh, all these other guys did it. And it looks like it's worked in this instance. But maybe that maybe this actually explains one of our recurring questions, which is why did they keep using it? Now, this is a capture that's very early on in the war, August... Mm. 1940. Phony war only really ended in May 1940. So we're talking about the first four months, if you like, of proper, really hotting up. Yeah, really hotting up. Yeah. And so maybe the fact that it did actually work early on in the war explains why they kept at it. Because we're still seeing it being used in 43, 44, by which point they're almost laughing at the guards trying to get this information out of them. Yeah. But, but the fact that it worked this early on in the war perhaps explains And maybe, that. maybe feedback hadn't come back. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously we've seen you know reports being given of people managed to get back and say, look, this is the ruse they try and do. He goes on to say that he was asked which station he had come from. 
and whether Kenley Aerodrome had been badly bombed. I gave no definitive answer to that last question, and later on he was visited by the Commandant, who engaged him in general conversation, asking seemingly innocent questions. He also asked if Kenley had been badly bombed, and he did not give a definitive answer, and that conversation lasted about half an hour, and after being left for an hour or two further, he was taken into the camp properly, and put in a room with seven other sergeants. He was kept in Dulagluft for about two and a half weeks. Yeah, so as you say, he was kept in Dulagluft for about two and a half weeks, and early in September 1940, so he wasn't 100% certain, but around about the 8th or 9th of September, he was moved to Stadlouf 1 at Bath, where he was to remain until April 1942. So he was there about 18 months in total. Quite a time. Yeah, exactly. And he goes on to state that I did not know of any attempted escapes being made at this camp during my stay. Now, the Barth camp has come up semi-regularly. There were definitely escape attempts being made. It appears he just wasn't involved in them, which is fair enough. And so while for seemingly the first 18 months of his incarceration, he was not that involved in escapes, he was certainly to make up for that throughout the rest of his time (laughs) in, in, in the prisoner war camps. And so in April 1942, he was moved from the Stahlgluft at Barth to a very well-known camp called Stahlgluft 3 in Zagan. Well, that would make sense because it opened at the start of April. And obviously, if Barth was getting a bit full by then, mm-hmm. open a brand new camp, move people in. So it would make sense. Yeah. And we certainly know that a number from Barth were moved to Zagan. In fact, he states that the whole camp was moved to Stahlgluft 3 on the 18th of April 1942. Now, interestingly, he does say, I was interested in several tunnel schemes while in Stalwith 3, but none of the tunnels got outside the wire. Now, admittedly, he was there for only about six months mm. at this point, but in, in that time, certainly none managed to break out, which is not particularly surprising. We certainly know that the escape committee were active during this time, but it was primarily involved with actually setting up the X organisation, which would go on to organise the Great Escape in two years' time. So we, we know from this report that there were tunnel schemes going on at this time, but during the six months that he was there, none actually managed to break out. So in September 1942, so we're talking about more than two years after he was shot down, he was moved to O-Flag 21B in Schuben. Now, he had actually volunteered to go there with one of the officer purges because he'd heard that escape was easier in Poland. I'm not entirely sure what the basis of that rumour was, but I suppose by 1942, rumours were just flying around Mm. left, right and centre. We know prisoners of war were generally quite bored and gossip was a primary source of entertainment. And almost to deflate that myth, he immediately says, our boots were taken from us on the train journey on which there were also two guards to every three prisoners of war. So certainly if if he had heard that it was easier to escape, they immediately made it more difficult by taking away his boots and certainly difficult to escape en route to Mm. the new camp. So having arrived at Schubin in September 1942, he states that initially at Schubin, army privates were allowed out of the camp to go to the railway station in the town for bread and coal. Now, as a relatively newly arrived RAF sergeant, he was not included in that grouping. And we know from, again, other reports, other escapes, that it often took time to become someone that was trusted Mm -hmm. within these camps. And particularly as a, he's effectively gone as an orderly. So potentially a badman or just someone to do general work detail around the camp. And that certainly seems to be what he's done. So he says, after a time, RAF sergeants, such as himself, who had a good reputation, were allowed to go out on similar duties under escort, generally one guard to two prisoners of war, or in the case of the coal party, four guards to ten prisoners of war, which is quite a strict ratio 
actually. Mm. You, given when we see those who escape on marches, such as Embry, for example. Yeah, you've got hundreds and hundreds it, and hundreds in a line, if it, not thousands and six guards. Or yeah, something. exactly. I mean, admittedly, they're armed to the teeth, but nonetheless, it wasn't that hard to make a dash for it, given that you were potentially 100 yards from the nearest guard. Yeah. To have four to ten... It's quite a strict ratio, presumably why you needed to become quite trusted, Mm. even for that. So he states that he'd actually already been out on one of these sorties to the railway station to pick up bread and coal, etc. He'd been out twice before, before he even attempted to make an escape. On the first occasion, he had not had time to make any preparations, such as food, papers, etc. And on the second occasion, when he had made preparations, someone else tried to escape, which had made the guards very suspicious, and given that they're already at a ratio of what? two to five yeah not unexpected that the guards were suspicious and keeping a close eye on them given that someone had already attempted to escape and on that occasion two of the officers had managed to get out of the camp by changing places with some of the orderlies but both were caught by civilians later on so on the 15th of december 1942 waring had heard that a bread party was expected and he got himself put on the general duties roster which meant inclusion in the party to go and pick up the bread However, the bread did not come that day, and on the next day, the 16th of December, just before the bread party went out, he changed places with another RAF sergeant, so presumably on the rota. The guards at the gate were suspicious because he'd been on the rota for the previous day, not for the 16th. But Waring managed to allay these suspicions by explaining to them that he'd taken the place of another sergeant to allow that other sergeant to go and get his tea. Very kind of him. No ulterior motive, of course. So the bread arrived at the railway siding at Shubin in a closed wagon. Now, we know from other escapes that being able to locate yourself in a railway siding is not an unhelpful location to be in when you're trying to make an escape. Indeed. Having found himself in this railway siding, the lorry was backed up to the wagon and the bread unloaded. Now, during the operation of of this, one of the prisoners of war dropped a loaf on the line by accident. Now, Waring actually states that he'd intended to do this on purpose in any case, so he took the opportunity presented by the other prisoner's mistake and squeezed between the wagon and the lorry, getting underneath the truck and running across two sets of lines and two platforms. That's good going. Without being noticed. That's really good going. Yeah. Now, a German driver had come out of the wagon with him, but got into the cab of the lorry and started the engine. And as the other guards were in the wagon, they couldn't have seen him. And he says, I heard no shots, and so I did not think any of the Germans could have seen me go. Now, this is where timing is perhaps key, because he states it was about 5 or 5.30 in the evening. Now, given this is the 16th of December, it means it was actually quite dark. Now, he states earlier that he'd actually managed to make some preparations, and in actual fact, he lists out all the equipment he's managed to prepare for himself, and it is actually quite impressive. Mm -hmm. So he writes in his report, My equipment for the escape was as follows. Section A, Clothes. Army boots, army officer's trousers, faded and dirty, an RAF NCO's tunic. He had altered this himself by taking off the pockets and badges and then sewn them on very lightly, just loosely attached. Mm-hmm. Therefore, once he escaped, he tore these off and the tunic looked more like a civilian jacket. Good plan. It is actually quite a smart move and quite easy to adjust and assimilate as a result. He also had a cap which was made from RAF trousers and new socks. Socks are always important during a cross-country escape. He was also wearing an army greatcoat when he left the camp but discarded it in the lorry. Now that would have at least had the purpose of hiding the fact that he was perhaps semi-prepared for an escape. Yeah. And also had a comb, a pocket mirror, soap and shaving kit which he used to wash on, on the journey. Now again, we have stated before how important it is to look presentable, to not stand out, to assimilate into the general population, to basically not look like a tramp. Exactly. 
Now for food, he states they had a packet of 30 or 40 hard German biscuits, which had been issued in lieu of a day's bread ration. Three tins of Red Cross cheese, a packet of Canadian cheese, also from the Canadian Red Cross, one block of sugar, again Red Cross sourced, two tins of Horlicks tablets, and chewing gum and one tin of Yeetex. Now, I'd never heard of Yeetex. No, that's new on me. It is a yeast extract. I must confess, I couldn't immediately see the purpose of taking this other than it just provided sustenance. Mm. He'd also taken with him a compass, which he'd made himself during the winter of 1940, so he'd managed to make, keep hold of, and hide, through two years' worth of searches, a homemade compass. And then also three separate sets of maps, one for Schubin to Danzig, another for Schubin to Bromberg, and then another one at a much smaller scale of Schubin to Danzig as well. Excellent. And he states he got these maps in the camp where they'd all been copied on a pad made from table jellies, and these were provided to them from the escape committee, which in turn means that they were probably sourced via MI9 Hmm. and had been smuggled into the camp. So it's really good to kind of see that link from London into the camp to them being used. And then, of course, this is an MI9 escape report, so we're seeing this intelligence going full circle. Yeah. Now, he, he didn't have a water bottle with him, but he carried all of the food distributed around his clothes. However, the biscuits, which of course, as he stated, were hard German biscuits, were inside his long trousers at the top of his socks and got wet as he was crossing some marshes. Mm. It's quite inconvenient to effectively create a raw porridge in the bottom of your trousers. Yeah, not good. So to the escape itself, so having managed to get away from the working party, he was of course located in Schubin Station, and rather than hanging around, he actually took the decision to go cross-country. So he ran southeast across marshy country, as he just stated, which destroyed his biscuits, towards the village of Blumenthal. He then states that he turned northeast, past another prisoner war camp, which presumably is some sort of satellite camp, skirted the northeast side of Netzwalde and joined the main road to Bromberg. There, two cyclists passed him, but he saw them from some distance off, therefore hid in the ditch by the road. He's clearly taken a lot of precautions at this stage, and he he even goes so far as to say that at a bridge over a canal, which everyone in the camp believed to be guarded, there was no guard, but he still took his time to kind of cross this bridge mm-hmm. based on the intelligence that they had. From there, he continued on towards a level crossing where he saw a light and heard someone cough, so he then effectively decided to skirt around that, heading northwest towards a set of woods, and continued on until he reached the railway line which he then followed all the way to Princeton which is west of Bromberg now he, by this stage he's already actually travelled 23 kilometres it's pretty good going he's gone a fair trek and it's at this point he decides to take a little bit of a break so he's been travelling effectively through the night and he climbs into a cutting and then hid in some bushes when he saw a couple of people out with torches one of whom had a dog so it's actually quite a narrow escape because dogs quite pick often up pick up yeah. the scent and they get uh, a bit shouty yeah exactly they can So the following morning, he then followed workers going into Bromberg. So the next day, he states that he'd intended to lie up for the day on a bed of twigs that he'd made for himself. At about 9.30 in the morning, an old pole in tattered clothes came along and looked at him. He went away without speaking, but he could hear people working nearby, so he decided it was a good opportunity to move on before anyone decided to pay too close attention to him. He therefore moved south and then east through Bromberg, and then through the plantations of a pine wood nearby. He walked quite slowly using his compass and rested up occasionally, and during the day he even skirted around an aerodrome. Eventually he reached the main road running north-south, and so he hid on the east side of the road from about noon until three in the afternoon. He then started walking north along the road towards Bromberg. We're now at the 18th of December, and then we've reached Bromberg. Now this is where we see an old trope of the escape story rearing its beautiful head. Oh, do I know what this is? 
Possibly. So. Oh, fantastic. So he states, in one of the main streets of Bromberg, I stole an old bicycle standing at the curb. Brilliant. Brilliant. I therefore took the Danzig Road and headed north. Now, the bicycle was not much good and he had to walk and cycle alternately, which really does suggest it was in no great state whatsoever. But nonetheless... It's a stolen bicycle. Yeah. It's, it's going to It's a help. classic. It's a classic. Now, he, he does say that there were signposts all the way. Now, I find this quite interesting because one of the first things they did in Britain was to remove all the signposts. Correct, yeah. And yet, all these signposts are still up in the middle of occupied Poland. Well, the Russians are still a long way away. And it's not like we had people on the ground, was it? I mean, we were melting ours down. Well, well yeah, parachutes as well, but we also needed to make aeroplanes and shells out of Nonetheless, there, there were still RAF airmen parachuting down on a almost daily basis by December 1942. Yeah. And we also know that there were not just escape lines, but the Germans were very aware of the escape lines. So if you're effectively giving them a pointer in the right direction, there's not a lot of effort being no. taken here by the Germans. No. Perhaps they deserve to lose the war. <laughs> No, I, I see where you're getting with it. It's also thinking like land masses and things like that. You know, in the UK, what have you got? Maximum probably 100 and something miles, 150 miles straight line between bits of water. Whereas, you know, there you're probably talking four or 500 miles, surely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose if it says Danzig, 180 kilometres, it's not too bad, is it really? But, not the um, end of the world. So he turned off the Danzig Road just north of Grupa and crossed the Vistula by what seemed like a temporary wooden bridge. However, this wooden bridge had German traffic policemen at both ends of the bridge and there was only single traffic and sentries at intervals of around about 100 yards on what was about a mile and a half long bridge and there were also machine gun nests at both ends. So quite a risky venture to try and cross at that point, but he did and succeeded. By this stage, he is around about 100 kilometres south of Danzig, but heading in the right direction. So they'd heard in the camp that British soldiers had got boats for Sweden at Gradenz. And although he walked along the riverbank heading north, he only ever saw river steamers and barges and absolutely no facilities for larger boats. Now I must admit, 100 kilometres inland from Danzig seems like a long way for a major ship, the sort that might be heading to Sweden to actually be able to berth. Yeah, absolutely. He therefore returned to the town and rode up to the railway station where he entered a porter's entrance at around about 11 o'clock in the morning. Not being able to see any notices indicating passenger trains to Danzig and no goods trains either, he decided not to risk examining the goods trains too closely in case he was questioned. So in the absence of trains running to Danzig, he therefore, what he describes, and I love this, I exchanged my bicycle for a new one which I saw a German leave outside. I see that as a good exchange. I'll leave The operative word one. being exchange. <laughs> well, he left one and took one. The net result is number of bikes outside still one. It's just different. Just not the one that was left there before. <laughs> Look, my heart isn't bleeding for the German. Let's put it this way. So he then went back through the town and recrossed the bridge over the Vistula. Now, his description of it sounded quite heavily armed and protected. And having already crossed it once, I thought it was quite bold to then go back and cross it again. Nonetheless, he actually states that the guard stopped two Germans in uniform and turned one back. While the guard was doing this, I rode around the group and crossed the bridge without being challenged. So we've seen before whereby someone on foot has been stopped yes, by a guard. And right. the person on the bike has just sort of rung their bell and... Just gone through. Gone through. Yeah. So having managed to evade detection thus far, he set off again in the direction of Danzig and joined the main road north, cycling through Neunberg. Now at one stage, he states that I find a big can of milk beside the road and help myself. Having helped himself to milk, this was some sort of quote-unquote 
exchange sim- oh, similar to the bike i see whereby he's helped himself yes and uh, hopefully not left anything in this instance hopefully not so no top it up no exactly and that night he slept in the haystack on a farm so we're now at the 19th of december so only three days after he has escaped now he set off again between three and four in the morning and continued along the main road now admittedly at this time in the morning it'd be relatively quiet but on the flip side, wouldn't it be quite suspicious to be found cycling along the road at three in the morning? When you say with that, a curfew. I'm wondering if it depends on the day of the week. Because we've seen with The Great Escape, there were lots of people busy at a train station in the early hours of the morning. But I think because it was a Friday, wasn't mm-hmm. it? People were moving around a lot more. So it wasn't uncommon to get lots of movement. Sadly, I don't know what that particular day of the week was. But mm-hmm. again, if you're getting close to a port as well, surely you're going to get lots of traffic. You would think so, and he, he presumably managed to assimilate into the traffic fairly well because he managed to reach Danzig that day. Mm. Now, in the three days since he's escaped, and really two and a half at best, because he escaped about 5.30 in the afternoon on the 16th, and we're now talking about early morning on the 19th. So at best, it's two and a half days since he's escaped. He's covered 120 kilometres. Mm. Again, fairly rapid going, and shows why bikes were such an effective... Even in bad condition. Yeah. They're good. Yeah. In the middle of December as well, you know, the, the weather's not going to be particularly helpful to no. an escaper. So having arrived in Danzig, he made his way towards the harbour, which can't have been too hard to find, ultimately, you just keep heading north. He took some time to sort of walk around for, for a couple of hours and just sort of assimilate himself and understand the layout. And eventually he managed to get into the harbour itself. Once inside... He again wandered around, made sure he was familiar with the layout, understood where and what he was aiming for. And then he went to a public park nearby and had some lunch and then returned to the main part of the town. There, a pole had promised to show him the docks, but he had simply taken him back to where he'd already been, so it wasn't a particularly helpful contact to have made. He also tried to buy some bread, but as the shops were full of Germans, he was not allowed to enter. So eventually he parted ways with this pole. That evening he headed back in the hope of finding a free ferry, which might take him into the dock. However, there weren't any and he had no money on him. He'd accidentally left all the money that he had collected in the camp by mistake and only had 10 pfennigs on him. The equivalent of 10 pence. Yeah, Yeah, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And he'd actually given this to a charitable collection. So in desperation, he'd actually gone to an unfurnished house around about 9 o'clock at night and managed to sleep a couple of hours there. However, a man, which he presumed was from a neighbouring farm, came into the house and flashed a torch. Now, while he didn't see wearing there, he left the house as he came in to make sure he wasn't seen and, of course, had been disturbed. So in the morning, he then cycled east for a couple of miles in the hope of reaching the sea, but when that didn't work out, he just returned to Danzig. And again, he succeeded in getting into part of the harbour where he managed to see some ships. And he goes on to state, I could see three or four with Swedish flags and two were flying the Blue Peter. Now, for those of us in the UK, Blue Peter has a strong resonance, shall we say. It certainly does. It is an extremely well-known children's TV programme. In fact, it is the longest-running children's TV programme in the whole world, having first been broadcast in 1958. First of all, do you know what the Blue Peter was? It was a flag, wasn't it? It was a flag. It was the name of a flag, but what it signified. No. So in the International Maritime Signals, 
The blue Peter was to signify that the ship was ready to embark and therefore the sailors were to return to the ship. The significance of this from the TV programme perspective, it was named after that flag for a couple of reasons. The first was that the name was deemed quite friendly. Blue is a popular common colour and Peter would be the sort of name that a a friend might have, particularly in 1958. Mm -hmm. The second reason was because this flag symbolised that the ship was ready to embark and that sailors returned to the ship, it was deemed a suitable flag to represent going on an adventure or a journey, Mm. which is quite fitting. For those who are familiar with Blue Peter, there's a lot of adventure stories in it. It's quite... I just remember making Tracy Island. Oh, yeah, so did I. It was great. Um, <laughs> it all went mouldy eventually because it was all flour, water and old newspapers, but <laughs> I had fun. Yeah, well, no, exa- but that's exactly it. It's like you had fun. Yeah. It, it was... I think t- my parents dreaded it. You know, what what's going to be on Blue Peter tonight? What we're going to have to make out of cereal packets and PVA glue? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Brilliant. But that's precisely the point. It was there to signify adventure which for young children it did. Mm-hmm. So it was in keeping with what the flag represented, that w- that is why the TV programme was named after this flag. Now, he was able to utilise his knowledge of the, what the meaning of this flag was for in order to identify Swedish ships that were ready to go. Mm-hmm. Now, we've never heard this referred to before in an escape report. No. This is certainly the first time I can recall coming across it. And so I thought that was quite significant detail For those of you who are not familiar with the International Maritime Signalling flag system, a blue peter is a blue flag with a white square in the middle of it. So having identified what he states as three or four Swedish ships, two of which were flying the blue peter and therefore ready to embark, he managed to avoid the sentries that were posted in the quay beside the ships and hid himself and the bicycle in a stack of timber beside some railway lines. From this hiding place he was able to watch the boats for about an hour, during which time one of them left. And after that, he came out just as the guard was being changed. So he has already seen one go, thus effectively confirming the information and intelligence that he had from this flag. But he's also timing it so that it's when the guards are changing, therefore they're less familiar with what's been checked, what's not been checked, etc. Et exactly. So making the most of this opportunity, he states that he walked in the direction of the ships and walking slowly towards the last boat as it was loading coal, he approached the guard on the gangway who turned and strolled away just as he was walking up the gangway. Now at the same time, three or four other guards saw him but did nothing about it. So presumably they've just assumed that he is a member of the crew. If he's fairly presentable, why not? Yeah. From there, he went straight into the main forward hold into which the coal was being loaded. He went in by the hatch, which was at that point not being used, and climbed down the side of the hold, dropping onto the coal. He managed to get himself as far forward as he possibly could and hit against the side, remaining there all day. Bet that was nasty. Mm, can't have been pleasant. Lots of coal dust. Now, having been there all day, he was actually nearly caught. So he, he says that when the hold was about three quarters full, about a dozen Russians and two or three Germans came in to trim the coal. At that point, he hid behind a pillar and several Russians actually saw him, but he said to one of them that he was a British pilot. Presumably he spoke some smattering of Russian in mm-hmm. order to be able to make himself intelligible. The Russian that he spoke to then told the others and none of them said anything. By this point, it was dark anyway and the Russians were working by floodlight. Eventually, they went away for a meal after they'd left, he forced the trap door that led into the trimming bunker and there was no one there, so he dug a hole for himself in the coal at the side of the ship and hid himself again. Now, the next morning, the Germans searched the ship. One came quite close to them, flashing the torch, and they were there for quite a long time. The crew later told them that the search of the ship had lasted two hours as the Germans stated that they were searching for an escaped prisoner of war. Ooh. Indeed. The boat then sailed at around about nine o'clock in the morning on the 21st of December. 
in total, he was hiding there for three and a half days. Wow. Which must have been pretty unpleasant. And by the time he came out, he was pretty weak and had had no water for several days. Eventually, he left his hiding place in the early morning of the 23rd of December and went out for some air. Now, one of the crew did see him and a second crew member brought him bread. He asked them not to tell the captain as they'd heard in the camp of escapers being taken back to Danzig by skippers. The other two crewmen went and got a third man who spoke very good English and the crew agreed not to give him away, certainly not at that point. They were all very friendly and brought him water every half hour. They told him that the ship would be docking at Halmstad around about two o'clock that afternoon and he promised to keep him on board until dusk and then help him ashore. He was then taken to the crew's quarters and given a wash and a meal. However, one of the crew became scared and it was decided to tell the captain there and then. The captain was friendly but said he would have to fetch the police once they arrived in Sweden. So they did arrive in Halmstad that afternoon and the police took him straight to their headquarters in Halmstad and took details about him and said he'd be interned. Now, I personally wouldn't be that bothered about being told you reported to the police once you arrive in Sweden. Yeah. I'd be a lot more bothered if he said he was turning around and reported to the police once they arrived back in Germany or elsewhere in occupied Europe. Upon being told he would have to be interned, he asked them to telephone the British consul. But as there was none in the town, they then got in touch with a British resident who in turn telephoned the consul in Gothenburg and arranged for him to be given clothes. Now, he's he's arrived in Halmstad six days after escaping and he then spends a further three days there sleeping at the police station and spending the day with the British residents he's made contact with. On the 28th of December, he then goes to Stockholm via Helsingborg with a member of the legation staff. Now, I said that he mentioned the yeast extract again. Hmm. He does say, I found on my journey that I did not require all of my food. After the first night, I never felt hungry. The cheese and the yeetex were particularly good. I was not troubled by thirst pus because of the damp, misty weather. Well, I suppose it's better than we had one before with cabbage, didn't we? Wasn't it some awful cabbage soup yeah. that was doing horrendous things to you, say? So nonetheless, he arrived in Stockholm on the 28th of December 1942 and left Stockholm on the 5th of January 1943, arriving in Lukers the same day, around about two and a half years after he was captured on the 25th of August 1940. It's not bad going. It's not at all, actually. I mean, particularly as, you know, he was only in Stockholm for not that long. Mm, And he escaped on the 16th of December and was back in the UK by the 5th of January. So we're only talking about 20 days. So in under three weeks, he's managed to make it all the way back to the UK. Many spent more time than that waiting in Sweden for, for, for things. So, yeah, well, I mean... It's quite early in the war still. I suppose unusually in this instance, because he's fairly junior rank, and normally in the junior ranks we don't really manage to find much else about them in their later war, but actually I did in this case. So he obviously went for debriefing, which is why we've got the report. He then spent several months lecturing. Okay. Now I can well imagine that his experiences of this particular escape and life in the camp probably did others good. Mm-hmm. I'd have thought. I suspect most of the lecturing was going to be based on that. He was then commissioned to be a warrant officer in July 1943. He was actually awarded the DCM okay. uh, for this escape, and that was gazetted in December 1943. He spent the rest of the war as a flying instructor and okay. didn't go operational again. And he was released eventually from the Royal Air Force in late 1945, but he retained service in the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve. And in 1949, he was recalled to serve as a traffic control officer in Hamburg as part of the Berlin Airlift. 
Um, Interesting. I didn't find very much post-Berlin airlift other to say that uh, he passed away in May of 1987 at the age of 82. So quite a long life, quite mm-hmm. an interesting life, certainly a very interesting early part of uh, his career. But mm-hmm. hopefully the experience of that escape did others well through his lecturing once he got back and that valuable information could be passed on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great example of the MI9 system, whereby they got the intelligence and information that was being provided by prisoners of war returning back to the UK and using that to disseminate that amongst those who are still on the front line, still serving. And it's almost a continuous cycle of intelligence that's coming back, being fed back to them, it's updated. It's actually a really good example of of that happening in practice. So a, a really interesting escape, actually. And you got to love a stolen bicycle. We need more stolen bicycles. We always do with more. Stolen or exchanged. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.